everybody. Uh, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I, as always, am Craig Eastman and with me tonight, Scott Morris. Well, hello there. Uh, we've got a bit of a packed show tonight, I suppose. Uh, so without further ado, we will be cracking straight on. So Scott, listen, let's, uh, let's kick off with The Secret in Their Eyes, which I'm guessing has nothing to do with Matthew Kelly. <laughs> uh, no, it is uh, oh. a remake of the original Argentinian film from 2009, 2010, that kind of period. Tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be sinking the Belgrano. <laughs> Moving hastily on to avoid such international instance, <laughs> uh, we don't want to get into that again. I wasn't, was not in particular looking forward to this Hollywood remake, just from general previous experience. I guess to a degree I was right to be wary of it, but this isn't terrible redo of the film, and in a lot of regards is exactly what you'd want from a remake. Plot of it is such a, a team of investigators in the immediate post-9-11 era are looking at terrorist leads, and they undergo a major trauma when Jessica Cobb, Julia Roberts' daughter, is found murdered, which Ray Caston, played by Chiwetel Le- Elijah Four, feels is partially his responsibility after blowing off an arrangement to meet her earlier in the day to discuss her mother's birthday party, and this kind of guilt weighs on him. The investigation into the murder leads all the way up to the higher echelons of power. I won't go into it too much into any great detail because, well, spoilers and all that, but it does put a strain on what seemed to be a possible romance between Ray and the young attorney Claire Sloan, played by Nicole Kidman. As with the original, it's told in two time frames: one at the original time of the murder and the initial investigation, and also in a more contemporary setting where, after some time, Ray believes he has tracked down the killer again. And it's still a very solid story, as with the original. And, well, the whole film is solid, and there's certainly no shortage of talent being thrown at this, in both the leading and supporting roles and also behind the camera. The localisation is intelligently done, and it's quite respectful of the source material. It's just a shame that the result of all this is a film that isn't really much above okay. There's none of the required chemistry between Elijah Four and Kidman, and while there's not a bad performance amongst the whole cast, all of whom are you know, individually great, that somehow never really pulls together into anything particularly special. It's still a film that's well, perfectly fine, but at the end of the day, it's one that in no way surpasses the original and is therefore pretty difficult to recommend over it. I was never going to watch Secret in the Rise anyway because obviously it features she who shall not be named and I just... I will not cast my eyes upon a frame of celluloid with her visage imprinted upon it. <laughs> but I can't understand. What is it about the source material this that made it ripe for a Hollywood remake? What was the, what was the end game here? I cannot answer that. In the same way, that there's an awful lot of remakes that have no real need to exist, but some of them just wind up working quite well. I mean, I, I very much enjoyed The Departed, but it didn't really need to be seen The Departed, as opposed mm. to Infernal Affairs. And I'm sure you could point at any number of these, either remakes of foreign language films or just remakes of older films. But, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And this one kind of doesn't. I don't think there's any rhyme and reason into it, other than trying to appeal to a, perhaps to a market that's not so forgiving of subtitles. Mm. It seems it seems an odd choice for me in that I would assume that the kind of audience who would be um, predicated towards watching this uh, mm-hmm. in the first place are probably probably a slightly more considered audience and and less likely to take umbrage at the thought of having to watch a foreign movie with subtitles to begin with. So it just yeah. it just strikes me as a very odd choice for an English language remake that I just I, I don't know what the end game of this stuff is. So many weird choices. Yeah, well, like you say, I think anyone who was the target audience for this would have just simply watched the original. And yeah, there, there is no real benefit to this remake and I mean it's it's not a bad idea 
to to remake a film that was very good and if you could do a similarly very good job of it I, I suppose that would maybe attract a, a new audience into it but yeah this one's a bit of a, a miss mm. well listen let's not waste too much more time then uh, on Secret in Their Eyes let's talk a little bit about Hail Caesar which is the latest Coen Brothers film and while I suppose in latter years a new Coen Brothers movie maybe isn't met with the same fervent excitement that it was perhaps a decade ago. They are still a force to be reckoned with. And is Hail Caesar anything to uh, get excited about? To an extent. It's not their prime joints, and it's actually probably something of a step down from something like Inside uh, Llewellyn Davis. However, it does have some value for people who love films, as as I suspect people who might be listening to, say, a film podcast may have. It's a return to the golden age of Hollywood, as we follow Josh Brolin's production studio fixer character, Eddie Mannix, who's normally tasked with sorting out production dilemmas and returning wayward stars to either the set or rehab clinics, but whatever routine this allowed for is shattered when his top star, George Clooney's Baird Whitlock, currently filming the titular historical epic, is kidnapped by what turns out to be a bunch of communist writers and ransomed. (laughs) (laughs) The plot is... Those commie writers. (laughs) Always kidnapping people. McCarthy tried to warn us. (laughs) The plot is at least nominally about trying to get him back, but it's not much more than a really loose framing device for a bunch of vignettes about broadly stereotypical movie stars and genres of the era, which are wonderfully observed and frequently very funny, but not really helpful in establishing much of a narrative. Are there zany hijinks, Scott? It's not as screwball as you might expect from the setup, although it is obviously very light-hearted in nature. Mm. And there's an awful lot of individual things in here that I really like, in particular Clooney's performance that allows him to at least showcase hints of his talent for physical comedy that I don't think gets uh, enough of an airing and there's another fantastic comedy turn from Ralph Fiennes and there's only one thing in here that's particularly annoying that being Michael Gambon's needless and horribly written narration that must surely be a parody of something that I'm not picking up on but nonetheless is just bad and it's one of these things along with just as with Secret in Their Eyes it just doesn't pull together into anything that's particularly solid and while it's enjoyable and it's unusual and as I say it's a love letter to the period in the grand scheme of the Coen Brothers output it's just a little bit too flimsy to hang with the best of them. A minor disappointment, but then again, even bad Coen Brothers films is still better than a lot of <laughs> a lot of other films. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, if, if if you know the name Coen Brothers film, you, you should probably go and see it. I'm sure you'll get something from it. But yeah, it's not it's not their best work. We're splitting hairs when we get to this point. But I mean, where does it stand against something like, say, the remake of The Lady Killers? Because we all know how that was received. I would suggest it's a lot better than that. Um, okay. Still got enough touches of kind of originality that you get when it's coming from something that is their own work, mm. rather than something like that or intolerable cruelty say it is a cut above those I had a soft spot for intolerable cruelty but I say that having never gone to revisit it since seeing it in the cinema so actually if nothing else that has reminded me to go back and check (laughs) out intolerable cruelty again but well fair enough let's talk a little bit about Room then Scott uh, which has had no small amount of buzz surrounding it recently in the awards season it's picked up numerous awards, uh, not least of all Brie Larson's Oscar for Best Actress. It's, uh, it's a curious film, one with a very simple setup. The first act taking place entirely within a 10 foot by 10 foot room uh, of unknown location, in which live Ma, played by Brie Larson, and Jack, her five-year-old son. Uh, it transpires that their situation is less than optimal, shall we say, without giving <laughs> away too much of the plot, uh, and that they are actually victims of a kidnapping, or rather that Ma has been a victim of a kidnapping, entrapped in the room for seven years, and her five-year-old son is the result of uh, sexual abuse at the hands of her kidnapper. Uh, daring uh, escape attempt is made, and young Jack, having 
lived entirely within the world of Room and having no experience of reality other than his view of the television, which he assumes is entirely make-believe, uh, is suddenly faced with a very large and very daunting world. And as he and his mother adapt to the outsides, let's not say too much more about it because actually not a great deal... <laughs> <laughs> not, not a great deal happens from that point onwards. But Scott, um, I was, I'm, I'm very interested to know what you think of the room because of room. Sorry, because I watched it with a great deal of anticipation, and it's one of those films which has fallen firmly into the category of am I missing something here? Because I found it, despite a subject matter and a simple setup, which could be very, very effective and some good. Uh, if not outstanding performances, I found it incredibly underwhelming. Well, you just know you're in for super happy fun times when you hear the phrase, based on the Joseph Fritzl case. Yes. Sounds like I'm enjoying this more than you do, but I can see there's a very real element, a real danger of this being too clever for its own good. There is a really clever inversion to the confinement of room. You know, because most of this has been sh- shown through the, the young boy, Jacob Tremblay's Jack viewpoint. So mm. there's a, an interesting inversion where the confinement to the room, which should be an ordeal, is being viewed as familiar and comfortable to him. Mm. And what should be the exhilaration of being free becomes tremendously scary and overwhelming ordeal Mm. and that's really clever but it's almost too clever for its own good it strikes a fundamentally weird and chirpy tone for such a dark matter yes that said i did think it was actually a good performance from b larson and the the little kid uh, jacob tremblay is also you know really good in it i couldn't really fault them for what they're doing there Mm. and i did find it to be quite affecting it's probably getting the recognition that it deserves, but I can't really say I enjoyed it. It's not the kind of film that is really enjoyable on that sort of level, but I can appreciate it. I appreciate the performances and I can appreciate the clever things that are happening in it. I, I know what you mean. It, it's a little tough to be completely engaged by it because it is mm. just it is so fundamentally unusual in what it's trying to do. It's, it's a terrible subject matter. And I actually went into it without reading anything of the plot other than, oh, it's about a kid who... As only sp- I was imagining it as some sort of like toddler version of old boy. Uh, it's like <laughs> this kid. It's about a kid who's who's spent his entire life in a room, and I literally no one. It's one of those rare occasions where no one really spoiled anything of that. Even though if you go to the IMDb page, the second word is kidnapped, yeah. Yeah. and the first word isn't a word. It's ah, a kidnapped mother and son make a daring escape. I actually went into it without realizing it was a kidnap drama. So I mean, fairly, it, it doesn't take long to realize that there's something yeah. terribly, terribly wrong with this setup. And I do admire it for tackling such a difficult subject matter. Though I just found far too many parts of the movie at odds with my expectations. I think it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the atmosphere. What was it? Did you say about the atmosphere? Sorry, a minute ago that that threw you. The tone, at least. The tone. It. Sorry. Yes. So the tone of the movie undermined no end by the score, which accompanies it for the most part incredibly at odds with the actual situation at hand and I found so many of the I found so many of the actions bizarre Although, of course, there's always the caveat that in a situation like this, of course, people's, people's psychological states are probably not what they would be optimally after seven years of being confined to a room and, and kidnap and duress and, and sexual assault. So there's no accounting for perhaps what the mother might think of as a good escape plan. But I sat there the whole time thinking, really, that's your escape plan? Your plan here is to put your child out into the world? And, and try and get your child out to spread the message that you're kidnapped with them having no experience of anything outside of this room and no understanding of anything. Th- that struck me as incredibly odd. As a parent myself, I can't imagine myself in a circumstance where that would have been my first my first and best option. But I think it does make pains to point out that it was not by any means her first option. She's tried other things and they didn't work. 
that's the whole thing of the, who trying to club people with the cistern from the toilet and that kind of thing. Oh, uh, right, which I've missed because one of the th- one of my thoughts was if only there'd been a lid on that. How have I yeah. missed that? If only <laughs> there'd been a lid on the cistern, I would have whacked him over the head with it. But she's tried that already. Yeah, this does okay. seem in, in many ways to be a, like a, a last desperate attempt to try and get, get at least get the kid out of there. Right. Uh, okay. Reevaluation required. Don't don't I don't I feel like the that would be the point at which I went to put the kettle on then. But really, so much of the movie I found the tone incredibly, incredibly odd. Very difficult to put my finger on, but I just wasn't engaged by it at all. And a lot of it sounds like a a far-fetched idea for a movie, were it not for the fact that we've experienced numerous such cases in the press, you know, with uh, you mentioned Joseph Fritzl and numerous recent cases in the States where exactly this kind of thing has happened. And And I tried to cut the movie some slack on the basis that, okay, yes, this kind of thing actually does go on, but I just wasn't engaged with the movie at all on pretty much any level and if I'm honest with you I spent the first 90 minutes of the film thinking over and over and over just somebody cut cut that kid's hair (laughs) I don't care about the power cut that kid's hair I was really really disappointed um, although I'm entirely prepared to accept that it may just be whatever state of mind I was in at the time I just wasn't I wasn't in the right frame of mind or the right mood for a film like this but I thought I didn't make any emotional connection to any of the characters. I didn't feel any great emotional revelation or any sort of uh, emotional epiphany. An odd, an odd, odd film from my my point of view. I know I will rewatch it because enough people obviously adore this film to suggest that I may just be wrong, and I'm just going to have to reevaluate it. But yes. I do see where you're coming from. I've I had essentially the same problem to a smaller degree because I think in the end it did reach some sort of emotional connection with me. But mm. as I say, the tone is fundamentally weird. That's the point of it. Mm. So I can't really criticise it for doing that. But whether it was the best way to do it, if it wanted to just be a traditional narrative, then it wouldn't be. Mm. But then again, you know, that's, Why that's, should that's it the be? point yeah. of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I dare say there's some of that tone. is probably to try and ease us into the kid's perspective of how alien this must all seem. But I just, I'm not entirely sure what this movie's end game was. I'm not entirely sure what I was supposed to take away from it mm-hmm. um, because the conclusion of the movie is very nondescript. Very, yeah. very nondescript. There's no sense of closure for anyone on anything, really. There are one or two loose ends which are left open, which I'm not, I'm not averse to. But in the absence of anything else, I probably would have appreciated some closure on those myself. So it's just difficult to engage engage with and you know for a film dealing with that subject matter I think a lot more could have been done and not necessarily by adhering to a, a, a traditional narrative I think more more power to it for, for doing something different but that thing that it did differently just wasn't wasn't to my liking <sighs> but there you go I am incredibly tired lately Scott <laughs> <laughs> I find I'm finding a lot of things difficult Watching the room, clearly one of them. Let's talk about Anomalisa. In which David Thewlis voices customer service guru Michael Stone in this Duke Johnston and Charlie Kevman stop-motion puppet extravaganza that uses a pretty extraordinary technique to tell what's mostly a very ordinary story. Michael was having something of a midlife crisis come nervous breakdown, but is given some brief respite from his seeming loneliness and alienation when he meets and becomes infatuated with a fan, Lisa, voiced by Jennifer Jason Lee. It swings between hyper-real awkward romance and mind-bending Kaufmanisms, in particular having every other voice in the piece coming from Tom Noonan, which may or may not be a nod to the syndrome that Michael may or may not be suffering. At any rate, on a technical level, there's an awful lot to appreciate in a film. The stop motion and the level of detail achieved is absolutely phenomenal. The question then becomes, why achieve it? 
I'm not entirely convinced we'd care much about this narrative if it was told live action. So does it then become one of those experiments where the technique of the film is so inherent to the worth of the narrative that it kind of can feel a little bit gimmicky at times? And while I suppose it can be regarded as a valid filmmaking choice, that sort of thing does tend to annoy me at times. So I suppose it's a mark of the charisma of the performances and also the technical merits of it that I'd still rather enjoyed this film, certainly much more than uh, Kaufman's other recent movies. So I have to give it a fairly reasonable recommendation. It, it looks really lovely and the acting is pretty good. Uh, the question of why it's done this way is mm. something I can't really answer. And it's another one of these techniques, you know, kind of like what we were talking about just there with the room. It's a it's a choice that seems to be there to enhance something that is relatively ordinary. But it seems like a massive amount of effort to go to go to to tell an incredibly ordinary story, from what I gather. Yeah, for the most part, it is. I mean, for Charlie Kaufman levels of Norman, uh, normal. Yes, uh, well, and Norman as well. Yeah. That's you know him too. Um, by his standards, it's, it's probably much more uh, grounded in reality than than most of it. But you know, there's the, the odd occasion where it does. Uh, turn to something that's kind of more like a psychotic break that Michael's having than anything else. Mm. But it's not like inherently mind-warping like uh, being John Malkovich kind of level. It's, it's just a bit strange. If I hadn't enjoyed it and if I hadn't been liking David Thewlis's character and his vocal performance and Jennifer Jason Lee's too, then I, I would probably be a bit more, taking a bit more issue with this because uh, you know, a lot of times it does seem that technique is used to just mask narrative failures by having some kind of technical brilliance to kind of make up for it. And mm. you see that a lot. I mean, it's... You know, it's arguably what would happen in something like uh, your what was that film with the uh, Avatar? Mm. You know, there's there's something where I think the narrative is horrible, and it was only remotely remarkable, not good, but remarkable because of the CG that was involved in it, yeah, uh, and the 3D, which and all that stuff. But you know, the, the actual story itself is rubbish, and it's just kind of trying to obscure that. And I kind of wonder whether that's the same thing that's going on in Normalisa. But yeah, <laughs> at the risk of being a hypocrite, I liked this where I didn't like Avatar, so <laughs> I'll get it a pass. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> that's- Interesting. Interesting that we should be comparing this to Avatar. But there you go. Very, very much at opposite ends of the effect scale, I should say. Mm-hmm. Very different production ethics. Yes. And, and aesthetics. <laughs> okay, so fair enough. Let's move on to uh, Trumbo then, which I assume is about a man who has lost the end of his trombone. No, in this case, it's about the Hollywood scriptwriter who overcome uh, being an elephant who ran away from the circus and turned out to be able to fly. <laughs> Hang on, no. (laughs) There's some truth in there. There's truth in everything. Uh, So, have you been checking under your bed for reds? Oh, we're back in in commie territory, are we? This is set in the immediate post-World War II communism paranoia that gripped America, and Hollywood was no exception. Screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, along with nine others, are imprisoned due to their evil socialist ways and beliefs, but on release they find they've been blacklisted and are unable to get any work at least under their own names. Trumbo starts writing, use a variety of cover non de plumes and gifting screenplays to other non-blacklisted friends, and eventually running a clearing agency of sorts for blacklisted writers fixing up low-rent producers The King Brothers scripts before fighting back and convincing major players of the time that he should be recognised under his own name and that his defence of free speech and his right to have his own political ideals should not be trumped by non-constitutional search for communists and all that sort of thing. It's a fantastic performance from Brian Cranston in the lead role, and for my money, he should have been the one carrying home the Oscar, and it's worth seeing for his stream of barbed witticisms alone, along with impactful emotional moments that makes this an immediate film of the year contender for me, and it also Mm. contains a show-stealing cameo from John Goodman that's worth the price of admission alone. So yeah, it makes lots of nice points about, you know, nature of free speech, how that can be defended in America, which is supposedly where that is sacrosanct, and... 
it also has just some really good lines and of course it's a really good way to learn a little bit more about Dalton Trumbo whose you know story I I did not know in particular of course we've, mm. we've touched on it a bit he did, he did the works for Spartacus which plays a role in his uh, recognition and sort of becoming out of the blacklist at the end of the day and how that was eventually overturned by by time and uh, sanity at the end of the day <laughs> and of course he was someone who managed to win uh, Academy Awards under his non de plumes and various assumed names so no, yeah, uh, very I, interesting story and very worth checking out I suppose that's the appeal of this movie to me and one of the reasons why I would like to catch up with it is not even so much the uh, sort of awards chatter surrounding it but as you point out just a, a nice easy digestible way to uh, to find out a little bit more about Dalton Trumbull's story because I am familiar with the name but like yourself not a great deal about the backstory other than that he was persecuted by uh, McCarthy and his, his witch hunts so um, interesting yes um, although like you say D- John Goodman's turning into good gracious how many how many fantastic performances has John Goodman turned in now in, in supporting roles since I think since the big Lebowski is he not basically just been on a roll for the last 20 years pretty much yeah he shows up and has about like seven lines in the whole film but they're, they're all tremendous lines yeah Awesome. Cool. I shall definitely check out Trumbo. And then let's square away this podcast, Scott, with uh, some discussion of the Best Picture winner at this year's Oscars, which is Spotlight, which is, uh, again, like Room, a fairly simple tale, uh, in this case based on the true story, quite tightly based on the true story, of the Boston Globe's Spotlight Department, whose job it was to root out stories which were of particular interest to the populace of Boston. And in this case, it is is focused on their investigation into the Catholic Archdiocese covering up allegations of child molestation by its, I was going to say ministers, that's not the word I want, it's... Um, priests. Priests. So on the on the face of it, um, a fairly, I guess, mundane and, well, I know some people have accused it of being lethargic and that's that's not the word I would choose. It's a very sedately, <laughs> sedately paced, very procedural look at the investigative journalism process. And I actually enjoyed it immensely. As I watched the film, it grew on me more and more. The very deliberate pace is going to put a lot of people off because this film is basically two hours of... Of reporters knocking on people's doors and being told to f off, sifting through old files, going down to the going down to uh, to the public records offices and badgering clerks for paperwork that's not there, having to file <laughs> appeals with lawyers to get the paperwork there that should be there, coming back and then being told that it's still not there. It, it's, Add me, the it's, movie. It's, it's not exactly Transformers, you know, the dark side of the moon or anything, but. Where a lot of films would place a lot of sort of emotional and dramatic gravitas here, and I think would probably dust up the scripted events to make them somewhat more dramatic. Spotlight's kind of happy to take a step back and just tell things, broadly speaking, how they were without adding too much flippant drama into the mixture. And for me, it was all the more rewarding for it. Yeah, uh, you just know you're in for super happy fun times when you hear the phrase, based on the <laughs> Catholic Church paedophilia scandal. But no, like you say, it's a deliberately paced, I guess would be the, the term for it, I suppose. It would have been, I suppose, a temptation to try and make the victims of the mm. uh, sort of more, more central to the role. And I think it made a, a very brave decision, dramatically at least, in kind of minimising that and focusing in almost entirely on the process of, as you say, just diligent digging and the legwork of the investigative part of it. Mm. And it's really looking more at the kind of journalist experience of it, and it does go quite a way into making you kind of have 
some degree of well, regaining perhaps some degree of respect for journalism, which has not been going through the best of times uh, recently. Mm. And it's a credit to both the script and the performances that it's managed to get so much drama out of mm. essentially not much happening. It could have been so tempting to go to some of the kind of more harrowing stories and lean on that a lot more, and it no. doesn't. Uh, you just just have a, a number of tremendous turns from Michael Keaton and Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams and Lee Schreiber. And, and what's just- interesting about it, like you say, is rather than rely on the victim stories and, and, and delving too deeply into those, a lot of the drama in the film actually just comes from the, the implied threat of, you know, what the outcome of this might be in terms of, mm-hmm. do you understand how powerful the Catholic Church is that they are able to manipulate public record? Yeah you know, and, and obfuscate public records to cover this thing up. Yeah, and how it grows from essentially seeming to be the story of maybe one priest. Yes. And then it becomes, you know, there's a couple, and then there's a few, and then it turns out to be a worldwide... <laughs> yeah, that's it. The big revelation comes as, uh, with, I think, I can't remember if it was Mark Ruffalo's character having a conversation on the phone with a guy who mm. points out that, look, that, based on statistics I've gathered, it would tend to be in the ballpark of about 6% of priests would be involved in this. Yeah. And uh, which, then they sit down, they sit down and very quickly do the maths and realise that that would be 90 priests in Boston alone, yeah. uh, in the Boston Archdiocese. And that's the, when that's the big sort of dramatic revelation of a film, I think, like I say, it's very much testament to the script and the, the performances that, uh, that it is actually so engrossing because on paper, this is, you know, it's, it's not a it's not a fireworks uh, display. Yeah, I mean, when I was sitting there watching it, two things struck me. The first one is I probably wouldn't have picked it as an immediate choice for best film of the year. Mm. Although, with perhaps more reflection, it might have grown on me. Uh, yeah. Particular in the fact that I would say this is quite easily the best ensemble performance of the year. Yeah. Terrific acting performance from everyone on board. It's good to see Michael Keaton get proper roles again, isn't it? Yeah. After a, a period in the wilderness, it's good to see him back and he's... I like him. Um, and yeah, the Mark Ruffalo does particularly well. Mark Ruffalo uh, just mm. continues to cement his uh, his status as my favourite actor or American actor of this generation. He's just, uh, he's absolutely phenomenal here. Absolutely phenomenal. And like all of the others, actually absolutely phenomenal, but in a very quiet and understated way. Yeah, I mean, there's only the, the kind of one scene I can think of where he actually does the, gets properly worked up and uh, about it. And, and arguably that's the weakest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is literally one scene where anyone raises their voice. I agree with you wholeheartedly on, on first inspection. I thought, really? Best film? But the more I've thought about it, and, and even within the final acts of the of the film, I was thinking to myself, no, actually, there's more to this. This film is a lot more clever, actually. Well, not necessarily more cl- clever is not the, the, the right word, but a lot more deserving, actually, and a lot more, a lot more thought and attention has gone into the planning and preparation of this movie than is necessarily apparent at, at first glance. Yeah, and I think this will stand the test of time a lot better than... Many of the films talked about for best oh, motion yeah. picture. This will, you could come to this, you know, 20 years down the line and it still seem as good and probably as relevant uh, then as it does now. Oh, hell yeah. I, I think in 10 years' time, people are going to be looking back on this and absolutely talking about it in the same breath as something like All the President's Men. It's not mm. going to be one of those ones where you look back and people go, really? That was the year that The Revenant lost out? Spotlight won it? Um, yeah. Because <laughs> arguably there is there is more here and it's a, a film of much more importance and weight and like you say just in terms of performances it can't really be faulted I was perhaps a little bit surprised that Rachel McAdams was nominated 
for her performance, which is not to say it's a weak performance. It's just perhaps difficult. And because it's it's that whole thing of you always complain about showy performances being given being given precedent. And I'm going to completely um, pull the rug out from under my own feet here and suggest that the lack of showiness in her performance baffled me a little bit as to why she was nominated. But actually, the more I watched it, the more I understood actually the, the nuances of what she and the rest of the cast were actually achieving. And it's yeah. um, for a film like this not to feel like two and a quarter hours is mm. a huge achievement in, in and of itself <laughs> really really engrossing and of course a massively massively important story that did have huge ramifications um, right. as pointed out at the uh, just before the uh, the credits of the movie but the other thing which I think is a credit to it is that it does also point some finger of blame towards the newspaper itself which yeah. is quite refreshing because it transpires that a lot of these or certainly some of this information was bought to the newspaper sort of uh, drip fed piece by piece at the time that some of these horrible, horrible acts were taking place and the newspaper under or the department involved under the watch of Michael Keaton's characters that transpires did nothing about it. So it's not it's I know that obviously for obvious reason I suppose a lot of a lot of people have said, Oh, you know, it's Catholic it's just it's just a piece of Catholic bashing propaganda. Uh, it's absolutely not. It is a very fair and measured um, assessment of happened. And to be honest, if you <laughs> <laughs> if you want to All be accused, these facts. Yeah. Why, why are you if you want us? to be accused of bashing the Catholic Church on the basis of the uh, the the information, obviously that this investigation uncovered, then I'm I'm <laughs> I'm not going to get in your way because that's one instance where actually it's quite appropriate in my my opinion. Um, and I won't Happily go, hand you the hammers. Yes, I won't go too much deeper into it than that because that's the that's the start of a huge rabbit hole. But um, yeah, I think like you say, I suspect in 10, 20 years time we will still be viewing this film and hopefully more people who dismissed it out of hand first time round as just being plodding and nothing happens in it. Uh, nothing happens in it. It's not the revenant. No one none of the cast suffered enough. You should only get our rewards for suffering. Yes, I think we'll I think we'll come back and uh, and review this in some time and, and hopefully it will get far more of the uh, the public recognition that it that it uh, clearly deserves. Indeed. Indeed. I think that just about wraps it up, Scott. Is there anything else we want to talk about tonight? Not in particular. No. Okay, well, listen, on that note, the next time you uh, you hear from us, we will be discussing Batman versus Superman, um, which I suppose I would say kicks off the, the blockbuster season, but it's fairly early kickoff in this instance. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, until then, thanks for listening. Um, I've been full of shit, and Scott was Scott. <laughs> yes, I have indeed. <laughs> hey. uh, and we'll speak to you all again soon. Thanks, guys.